Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 299 of Forgotten Classics, where we will listen to more of Talents Incorporated by Murray Leinster, read by Mark Nelson from LibriVox. First, let me tell you about another LibriVox story I've been listening to, which I have really been enjoying. It is a mystery by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who was called the Agatha Christie of America back in her day. Of course, very few of us have heard of her these days, unless you go plowing through both LibriVox and Gutenberg.org and um, the free stuff for the Kindle <laughs> on Amazon, which is where everything 1923 and before appears. And in fact, what made me think of it is I am recording our next book, which I will tell you now is called The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood. And it made me think of another favorite, which is this one, The Window at the White Cat. It is from LibriVox. I will put a link, but it is read so wonderfully. This narrator has a great sense of voice, a great sense of just the story, I think, how he communicates the story. And the story itself has a nice sense of fun to it. Not in exactly the same way that Talents Incorporated does, but it is that we are told the story in first person by a lawyer who is continually stopping and kind of giving himself reality checks that are pretty funny at least to me, you know, this isn't a Jeeves and Wooster kind of funny. This is just a regular person. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought that or look at this thing over here. Funny. And it's a pretty good mystery too, by the way, just when you think you've got it all nailed down. Whoops. Nope. And there are some surprisingly modern themes in there considering how old fashioned it is. So, so I listened to this maybe, oh gosh, I want to say four or five years ago. And so I've kind of forgotten the answer to the (laughs) mystery, but it doesn't matter. I'm enjoying listening a second time. So I wanted to recommend that in case this is going too slowly, or you just have plenty of time to listen and you want to get it for yourself. At some point in the future, I will definitely put it on our feed the way I am doing with the Murray Leinster story, but that won't be for a while. So give it a try. Now, speaking of the Murray Leinster story, we had the big space battle last time. And I had mentioned, isn't it interesting that the strategy is to shoot down rockets that are coming toward you if you're in a spaceship and you're having a battle with another spaceship, rather than using a force field. And Ken wrote and mentioned that what I didn't notice is the way the spaceship's get from one place to another through these vast long distances. And he said, it is very much like the warp drive on Star Trek. And that's exactly right. The reason I didn't notice it, it's what I expected. Leinster goes into a touch more explanation over it, not tons, but it's the kind of thing where you're just going, oh yeah, of course, that's how you do it. Well, see, I fell into my own trap. So thank you, Ken. I also loved this sort of government attitude that's showing up here. Well, I didn't love it because it's the kind of thing that just frustrates the heck out of us as well as young Captain Vores. For instance, the general who wants to be gentlemanly about how we fight this war, and that really means losing the battle. You don't want to pull any dirty tricks on anyone. And Vores is thinking, see, it's war. The way I see it, as Reagan famously said, is we win, they lose. Well, that's not what they're thinking. They've already decided that they're going to lose because of the overwhelming forces, even though they could have a chance of evening the odds. And as we can see from the end of that battle, they did even the odds or more than even them, so much so that King Humphrey, again, love the namby-pambiness of that name, says, well, I'm so proud that we won the battle, although we have sealed our doom. And you're just thinking, what? I'm sorry, what? This is your big chance. 
What do you mean you sealed their doom? But that's where we were left. And the last thing that struck me that I enjoyed so much was the dirty tricks talent, where what you have is somebody who's just so naturally paranoid and with such a low down way of thinking that they can read a newspaper and see a dozen opportunities to stab someone in the back. And those are very likely the things that the other government, Meekin, is doing to Kandar. I just thought that was great (laughs) to take that terrible attitude and turn that frown upside down. (laughs) We're going to use it for good. So now let's go find out what did King Humphrey mean precisely? I think we all have our own ideas, but let's find out what Talents Incorporated can do about that. Because will their information have a way to change things? You can depend on it. Let's dive in. Talents Incorporated, Chapter 5 Nobody had ever found any use for the Glamis solar system. There was a sun of highly irregular variability. There were two planets, of which the one farther out might have been useful for colonization, except that it was subject to extreme changes of climate as its undependable sun burned brightly or dimly. The near planet was so close to its primary that it had long ceased to rotate. One hemisphere, forever in sunshine, remained in a low red heat. Its night hemisphere, in perpetual darkness, had radiated away its heat until there were mountains of frozen atmosphere piled above what should have been a mineral surface. It was a matter of record that a hundred standard years before, a ship had landed there and mined oxygen-containing snow, which its air apparatus was able to refine so the crew could breathe while they finished some rather improbable repairs and could go on to more hospitable worlds. The farther-out planet was sometimes a place of green vegetation and sprawling seas, and sometimes of humid jungles with most of its oceans turned to a cloud-bank of impenetrable thickness. Also, sometimes, it was frozen waste from pole to pole. The vegetation of that planet had been studied with interest, but the world itself was simply of no use to anybody. Even the sun of the Glamis system was regarded with suspicion. The fleet of Kandar made rendezvous at the galactic north pole of the second planet. On arrival, the massed cruisers and battleships went into orbit. The smaller craft went on a scouting mission, verifying that there was no new colony planted, that there was no man-made radiation anywhere in the system, that there was no likelihood of the fleet's presence, or for that matter, its continued existence, becoming known to anybody not of its ship crews. The scout ships came back, reporting all clear. The great ships drew close to one another, and small spaceboats shuttled back and forth, taking commanders and captains and vice-admirals to the ship, which, by convention, was commanded by King Humphrey VIII of Kandar. Captain Bors got to the conference late. There were some grave faces about the conference room, but there were also some whose expressions were unregenerate and grimly satisfied. As he entered the room, the king was speaking. I don't deny that it was a splendid victory, but I'm saying that our victory was a catastrophe. To begin with, we happened to hit the Meekinese fleet when it was dispersed and disorganized. That was great good fortune. If we'd wanted a victory. The enemy was scattered over light minutes of space. His ships could not act as a massed, maneuverable force. They were simply a mob of fighting ships who had to fight as individuals against our combat formation. "'Yes, Majesty,' said the grey vice-admiral. "'But even when we broke formation—' "'Again,' said the king, more fretfully still. "'I do not deny that the fighting ability of our ships was multiplied by the new way of using missiles. What I do say is that—' If we'd come upon the Meekinese fleet in combat formation instead of dispersed, 
if we'd attacked them when they were ready for us, it would be doubtful that we'd have been so disastrously successful. Say that the new missile settings gave each of our ships firepower as effective as two or three or five of the enemy. The enemy has ten to one. If we hadn't hit them when they were in confusion, we'd have been wiped out. And if we'd hit their fleet anyhow, we'd be dead. We did not hit the main fleet. We annihilated a division of it, a small part. We are still hopelessly inferior to the vast Mekinese fleet." Bors took a seat at the rear of the room. A stout rear-admiral said somberly, "'We hope we annihilated it, Majesty. There's no report of any ship fleeing in overdrive. But if any did escape, its report would lead to an immediate discovery of the exact improvement in our missiles. I am saying, Majesty, that if one enemy ship escaped that battle, we can look for all the enemy ships to be equipped with revised missiles like ours." Bors raised his voice. "'May I speak?' "'Ah,' said the King, "'Bors, by all means.' "'I make two points.' said Bors with reserve. One is that the Mekinese are as likely to think our missiles captured theirs as that they were uncomputable. Missile designers have been trying for years to create interceptors that capture enemy missiles. The Mekinese may decide we've accomplished something they've failed at, but they're not likely to think we've accomplished something they never even thought of. Voices babbled. A pompous voice said firmly that nobody would be so absurd. Several others said urgently that it was very likely. All defense departments had research in progress, working on the capture of enemy missiles. If it were accomplished, ships could be destroyed as a matter of routine. Bors waited until the king thumped on the table for silence. The second thing I have to say, Majesty— is that there can be no plans made until we know what we have to do. And that depends on what Meekin thinks has happened. Maybe no enemy ship got home. Maybe some ships took back inaccurate reports. It would be very uncomfortable for them to report the truth. Maybe they said we had some new and marvelous weapon which no fleet could resist. In that case, we are in a very fine position." The king said gloomily, "'You think of abominably clever things, Captain. But I'm afraid we've been too clever. If Meekin masses its entire fleet to destroy us, they can do it, new missile system or no new missile system. We have somehow to keep them from resolving to do just that.' Which said Bors, may mean negotiation. But there's no point in negotiating unless you know what your enemy thinks you've got. We could have meek and scared." There was a murmur, which could not be said to be either agreement or disagreement. The king looked about him. "'We cannot continue to fight,' he said sternly. "'Not unless we can defend Kandar which we can't as against the Mekinese main fleet. We were prepared to sacrifice our lives to earn respect for our world, and to leave a tradition behind us. We must still be prepared to sacrifice even our vanity." The vice-admiral said, "'But one sacrifices majesty to achieve. Do you believe that Meekin will honor any treaty one second after it ceases to be profitable to Meekin?" "'That,' said the king, "'has to be thought about. But Bors is right on one point. We should come to no final conclusion without information.'" "'Majesty,' Bors interrupted. His words came slowly, as if an idea were forming as he spoke. "'The enemy,' may have no news at all. They may know they've been defeated, but they'd never expect our freedom from loss. Why couldn't a single Kandarian ship turn up at some port where its appearance would surely be reported to Meekin? 
it could pose as the sole survivor of our fleet, which would indicate that the rest of us were wiped out in the battle. If we had all been wiped out, there'd be no point in their fusion-bombing Kandar. Certainly they expected us to be destroyed. One surviving ship can prove that we have been." The King's expression brightened. Ah, and we can go and intern ourselves. There was a growl. The pompous voice said, We would gain time, Majesty. Our fear is that Meekin may feel it must avenge a defeat. But if one ship claims to be the sole survivor of our fleet, it announces a Meekinese victory. That is a highly desirable thing. The king nodded. Yes, we were unwise to survive the battle. We can hide our unwisdom. Captain Bors, I will give you orders presently. As of now, I will accept reports on battle damage given and received. As Bors saluted and turned to the door, the king added, I will be with the pretender presently. It was an order, and Bors obeyed it. He went to find his uncle. He found the former monarch in the king's cabin of this, the largest ship of the fleet. The pretender greeted Bors unhappily. A very bad business, he observed. Bad, agreed Bors. But for the two of us, a defeat for Meekin is not bad news. For us and Trey Lee, the old man said reprovingly, there is some pleasure. But it is still bad. Every ship we destroyed must be replaced. Like every other subject planet, Trey Lee will be required to build how many ships? Ten? Twenty? We have increased the burden Meekin lays on Trey Lee. And worse, much worse. There's such a thing, protested Bors, as using a microscope on troubles. We did something we badly wanted to. If we can keep it up. The pretender said, How is the food supply on your ship? How long can you feed your crew without supplies from some base? Bors swore. The question had the impact of a blow. His Isis, like the rest of the fleet, had taken off from Kandar to fight and be destroyed. There were emergency rations on board, of course, but the food storage compartments hadn't been filled. The fleet did not expect to go on living, so it did not prepare to go on eating. It would have been absurd to carry stores for months when they expected to live only hours. It simply hadn't occurred to anyone to load provisions for a long operation away from base. That's what the king is worried about, said the pretender. We've some thousands of men who will be hungry presently. If we reveal that we survived the battle, Meekin's tributaries will begin to think. They might even hope, which Meekin would have to stop immediately. If we do not reveal that we still exist, what can be done about starving ship crews? It is a bad business. It would have been much better if the fleet had been destroyed, as we expected, in a gesture of pure fury over its own helplessness. Bohr said sardonically, We can all commit suicide, of course. The pretender did not answer. His nephew sank into a chair and glowered at the wall. The situation was contrary to all the illusions cherished by the human race. To act decently and with honor is somehow fitting to a man and consistent with the nature of the universe, so that decency and honor may prosper. But recent events denied it. Men who were willing to die for their countrymen only injured them by the attempt. And now the conduct which honor would approve turned upon them to bring the consequences of treason and villainy. A long time passed. Bors sat with clenched hands. It was the barbaric insistence of Meekin upon conquest that was at fault, of course. But this happens everywhere, as it has throughout all history. There are, really, three kinds of people in every community, as there have always been. 
There are the barbarians, and there are the tribesmen, and there are the civilized. This was true when men lived on only one planet, and doubtless was true when the first village was built. There were civilized men even then. If there was progress, they brought it about. And in every village there were, and are, tribesmen, men who placidly accept the circumstances into which they were born, and who wish no change at all. And everywhere, and at all times, there are barbarians. They seek personal triumphs. They thrive on high emotional victories. And at no time will barbarians ever leave either civilized men or tribesmen alone. They crave triumphs over them and each other, and they create disaster everywhere, until they are crushed. Bors said evenly, If the king's planning to surrender the fleet to Meekin as ransom for Kandar, it won't work. He is considering it, said his uncle. It will be a way of giving them the victory we cheated them of, though we didn't intend to win. It won't work, repeated Bors. It won't do a bit of good. They'll want to punish Kandar because it wasn't beaten. They feed on destruction and brutality. They're barbarians. The economic interpretation of history doesn't apply here. The Meekinese who run things want to be evil. They will be until they're crushed. Crushed? asked the pretender bitterly. Is there a chance of that? Bors considered gravely. Then he said, I think so. The door opened and the king came in. Bors rose and the king nodded. He spoke to the pretender. Somebody raised the question of food, he said. There isn't any to speak of, of course. You'd think grown men would face facts. There's not a man willing to accept what is, and work from that. Lunatics! He flung himself into a chair. Suggested, he continued, that a part of the fleet go to Norden to buy food and bring it back. Of course, Meekin wouldn't hear about it, wouldn't guess at the survival of the fleet, because food was bought in such quantities. Suggested, that a part of the fleet go to some uncolonized planet and hunt meat. Try to imagine success in that venture. Suggested that we travel a long distance, pick out a relatively small world, land and seize its spaceport and facilities, and equip ourselves to bomb Meekin to extinction, and do it in a surprise attack. Suggested— The king shook his head angrily. He did not look royal. He did not look confident. He looked embittered and even helpless. He still looked like a very honest man, trying to make up for his admitted deficiencies. Majesty, said Bors. The king turned his eyes. You're going to send me off for news, said Bors. I suggested earlier that my ship pretend to be the sole survivor of the fleet. I suggest now that the ship add the wild and desperate boast that since there's no longer a world which will sponsor it, it's turned pirate. It will take vengeance on its own. It defies the might of Meekin, and it dares the Meekinese fleet to do something about it. Why? asked the king. Pirates, Bors answered, controlling his enthusiasm, have to be hunted down. It takes many ships to hunt down a pirate. I should be able to keep a good-sized slice of the Meekinese navy busy, simply lying in wait for me here and there. And? There are tribute ships which carry food from the subject worlds to Meekin. Hating Meekin, as befits the sole survivor of this fleet, Majesty— it would be natural for me to capture such ships, even if I could do nothing better with them than send them out to space to be wasted. They wouldn't be wasted, naturally. They'd come here. The king said, But you couldn't supply the fleet indefinitely. Bors nodded agreement, but he waited. 
You may try, said the king querulously. Have you something else up your sleeve? Bors nodded in his turn. Don't tell me what it is, said the king. So long as the fleet gets some food and its existence isn't known. If I knew what you were up to, I might feel I had to object. I think not, Majesty, Bors said, showing a rare smile. I'll need some extra men. If I do capture food ships, they'll be useful. I can't imagine that anything would be useful, said the king bitterly. Tell the admiral to give them to you. Bors saluted and left the room. He went directly to the admiral, who, in theory, was second in command only while the king was aboard. He explained his mission and some of his intentions. The admiral listened stonily. I'll give you fifty men, he said. I think you'll be killed, of course. But if you live long enough to convince them that the fleet's been destroyed, you'll be of service. What, Bors asked, with a trace of humor, can possibly be done about the fact that we wiped out a Mekinese fleet instead of letting it exterminate us? The matter, the Admiral answered seriously, is under consideration. Bors shrugged and went to his own ship, the Isis. He was excessively uncomfortable. He said to his uncle, implied to the king, that he had some plan in mind. He did, but it angered him to know that he counted on assistance, that in theory he could not possibly accomplish it alone. It was irritating to realize that he expected Gwenlyn and her father to turn up, with their talents, when absolutely nobody outside of the fleet could possibly imagine where the fleet had gone. On Kandar, it must be assumed by now that it was dead. His ship's boat clanked into position in the lifeboat blister. The valves closed on it. A moment later, there was a whistling murmur, and the boat's vision ports clouded over outside and then cleared. He stepped out into the ship's atmosphere. His second-in-command greeted him in the control room. "'I was trying to reach you at the flagship, sir,' he said. The yacht Silva is lying a few miles off. Her owner has forwarded news reports to the flagship. He asks that you receive him when you can, sir. Bohr's apparent lack of surprise was real. He wasn't surprised. But he was annoyed with himself for expecting something so impossible as the Silva tracing the fleet through an overdrive voyage of days to a most unlikely destination like Glamis. Tell him to come aboard he commanded. He went to talk to the mess-officer, reflecting that he would ask the Morgans how the Silva had known where to come, and they'd tell him, and it would be extremely unlikely, and he would accept the explanation. The mess-officer looked harassed at the news of fifty additional crewmen to be fed. "'Principles of prudence and common sense,' said Bors, "'don't apply any more. We'll feed them somehow.' He went back to the control room. When Morgan appeared, beaming expansively, Bors was again unsurprised to see Gwenlyn with him. Logan, the mathematics talent, followed in their wake, looking indifferently about him. "'We wiped out the fleet headed for Kandar,' Bors observed. "'I don't suppose that's news to you.' Morgan cheerfully shook his head. And we're in considerably more trouble than before. Is that news? No, admitted Morgan. It's reasonable for you to be. Then, damn it, I'm going off on a pirating, news-gathering, food-raiding cruise alone, said Bors. Is that news? We brought Logan, said Morgan, to go with you. He'll be useful. That's talents, incorporated information I can depend on it said Bors dourly. In plain common sense, the odds are rather high against my accomplishing anything, such as coming back. Morgan looked at his daughter. He grinned. We heard gloom from him the other day, before a certain space battle, didn't we? He turned back to Bors. Look, Captain, our talents don't prophesy. 
precognition simply says that, when there are so many thousand ways an event in the future can happen, then, in one of those several thousand ways, it will. Precognition doesn't say which way. It doesn't say how. Especially, it doesn't say why. But we have a very firm precognition by a very reliable talent that you'll be alive and doing something very specific a year from now. So we assume you won't be permanently killed in the meantime. But anything else can happen? More or less, admitted Morgan. What will happen? We don't know, said Morgan again. Some day I may take you aside and explain the facts of precognition and other talents as I understand them. I'm probably quite wrong, but I do know better than to try to pry certain kinds of information from my talents. Right now I'm going to try to capture a, what you might call, a tribute ship, loaded with food from Eakin. Tralee, said Morgan with finality, you'll try there. Will I capture a food ship there? asked Bors. How the devil would I know? Morgan snapped. You asked the wrong question, said Gwenlin cheerfully. If you asked if there's a cargo ship down on Trevi, loading foodstuffs for Meekin, there can be an answer to that. Is there? At the moment, yes, Morgan answered. So the dousing talent says. Then I'll go there, said Bors. I thought you might, said Morgan. He looked at his daughter. May I come along? asked Gwenlin. With an assortment of talents. My father's going to have long conferences with the king. He'll need some talents here to work out things. But I could go along on your ship with a few of the others. We could help a lot. No, said Bors grimly. I thought not, said Morgan. Very well. Logan, you'll help Captain Bors, I'm sure. The math talent said offhandedly. Any calculations he needs, of course. He looked about him with a confident, modestly complacent air. Bors walked with Morgan and his daughter to the airlock. He turned to Gwenlin. I don't mean to be ungallant, refusing to let you run risks. I'm flattered, but annoyed, Gwenlin answered. It means I'll have to take drastic measures. Luck! She and her father went into the Silva's spaceboat. The blister doors closed. Bors went back to the control room. He began to set up the computations for astrogation from the son of Glamis to the son of Tralee. He shortly heard the sound of arrivals via the Isis's airlock. Presently, his second-in-command reported fifty additional hands aboard. They included astrogators, drive engineers, and assorted specialists. After clearance with the flagship, the little warship aimed with painstaking exactitude at Tralee's sun, making due allowance for its proper motion, Glamis's proper motion, the length of time the light he aimed by had been on its way, the distance and the Isis's travel rate in overdrive. Presently Bohr said, Overdrive coming, and counted down. After one, he pressed a button. There was the singularly unpleasant sensation of going into overdrive. Then the small fighting ship was alone in its cocoon of warped and twisted space. Until it came out again, there was no possible way by which any message could reach it or its existence be detected or proved. Theory said, in fact, that the cosmos could explode and a ship in overdrive would be unaware of the fact so long as it stayed in overdrive. But Bors's light cruiser came out where the sun of Tralee was a disk of intolerable brilliance, and all the stars in every direction looked exactly as usual. Talents Incorporated, Chapter 6 The Isis approached Tralee from the night side, and at a time when the planet's spaceport faced the sun. Tralee was not a base for Mekanese warcraft. To the contrary, it was strictly a conquered world. It was desirable for Mekanese ships to be able to appear as if magically and without warning in its skies. 
there would be no far-ranging raiders on the planet except at its solitary spaceport. Mekini ships could come out of overdrive, time a solar system drive approach to arrive at Tralee's atmosphere in darkness, and be hovering menacingly overhead when dawn broke. Such an appearance had strong psychological effects upon the population. Bores used the same device, with modifications. His ship plunged out of the sunrise and across half a continent, descending as it flew. When it reached the planet's capital city, there had been less than a minute between the first notification by radar and its naked-eye visibility. When it came into sight at the spaceport, it was less than four thousand feet high, and it went sweeping for the landing grid at something over Mach 1. Its emergency rockets roared. It decelerated smoothly and across the upper rim of the great, lacy metal structure with less than a hundred feet to spare. In fraction of an additional minute it was precisely aground some fifty yards from the spaceport office. Steam and smoke rose furiously from where its rocket flames had played. Locked doors opened. Briskly moving landing parties trotted across the ground toward the grid control building. There were two ships already in the spaceport. One was a Mekinese guard ship of approximately the armament of the Isis. Weapons trained swiftly upon it. Missiles roared across the half-mile of distance. They detonated, chemical explosives only. The Mekinese guard ship flew apart. What remained was not truly identifiable as a former ship. It was fragments. Bors asked curtly, Grid office? The landing party was inside. A small tumult came out of a speaker. A voice said, All secure in the grid office, sir. Hook into planetary broadcast. Declare a first priority emergency and run your tape, commanded Bors. He said over the ship's speakers, Everything going well so far. Prize crew, take the cargo ship, keep the crew aboard, then report. Ten men poured out of the grounded light cruiser's starboard port and trotted on the double toward the other ship aground. The weapons on Borza's ship did not bear upon it. The sun shone. Clouds drifted tranquilly across the sky. Masses of smoke from the demolition missiles that had smashed the guardship rose, curled, and very slowly dissipated. Ten men entered the bulbous cargo ship. Up to now the entire affair had consumed not more than five minutes, from the appearance of a blip on a spaceport radar screen to the beginning of a full-volume broadcast. Bors turned on the receiver and listened to the harsh voice, especially chosen from among the crew, which now came out of every operating broadcast receiver on the planet. "'Notice to the people of Tralee. There is a ground on Tralee, a ship with no home planet, nor any loyalty except to its hatred of Meekin. We were part of the fleet of Kandar until that fleet was destroyed. Now we fight Meekin alone. We are pirates. We are outcasts. But we still have arms to defend ourselves with. We demand—' a voice said curtly in Bors's ear. "'Cargo ship secured, sir.' Take off on rockets and maneuver as ordered, said Bors. Then rendezvous as arranged. He returned his attention to the broadcast. It was a deliberately savage, painstakingly desperate, carefully terrifying message to the people of Tralee. It demanded supplies and arms on threat of destroying the city around it. A single one of its combat missiles, as a matter of fact, could have done a good job of destruction on this metropolis. The broadcast would be a shattering experience to men who had reconciled themselves to subjugation by the rulers of Meekin. The planet Tralee was now governed for the benefit of Meekin by the kind of men who would do such work. They knew that they could stay in office only so long as Meekin upheld them. To hear their protectors denounced, if only by a single voice. There was a monstrous roaring outside. The cargo ship took off for the skies. It was a thousand feet high before the weapons on the Isis stirred. It seemed to those below that the pirate crew was taken unawares by the cargo ship's escape. That was part of Bors's plan.
a weapon of the grounded Isis roared. A missile hurtled after the fugitive and missed. It went on past its apparent target and did not even detonate at nearest proximity, as it should have done. It vanished, and the cargo ship continued to rise in seemingly panicky fashion. It slanted from its headlong lift and curved away and darted for emptiness at its maximum acceleration. A second missile from the fighting ship missed. The cargo ship dwindled and dwindled, and now the Isis appeared to take deliberate measurements of the distance and acceleration of its target. It might be assumed that its radars needed to be readjusted from the long-range finding required in space to the shorter-range measurements called for now. Something plunged after the fleeing cargo boat, by now merely a pinpoint in the blue. The rising object moved so swiftly that it was invisible. Then it detonated, and the fumes of the explosion blotted out the fugitive. When they cleared, the sky was empty. There had now been a lapse of less than ten minutes from the first sighting of the Isis screaming toward the spaceport. The guard ship had been destroyed, and the cargo ship, which seemed to flee, had apparently been destroyed. When someone had leisure to think, it would appear that the cargo boat's crew had overcome the armed party which entered it, and then taken the foolish course of flight. Bors waited, listening absently. A voice. All clear on board the prize, sir. The cargo seems to be mostly foodstuff, sir. Proceeding to rendezvous as ordered. Off. Bors nodded automatically and resumed listening to the broadcast. Matters were going well. Everything had gone through with the precision of clockwork, which meant simply that Bors had planned in detail something that had never been anticipated and so had not been counterplanned. Before anyone on Tralee realized that anything had happened, everything had happened. The Isis aground, the guard ship demolished, the grid taken over, and a fleeing cargo ship apparently destroyed in the upper atmosphere. And a harsh voice now rasped out of loudspeakers everywhere, uttering threats, cursing Meekin. Few could believe their ears, and rousing hopes, which Bors knew regretfully, were bound to be disappointed. The rasping broadcast cut off in the middle of a syllable. Somebody had come to believe that he had really heard what he thought he heard. Now there would be a reaction. At the sunrise line on Tralee, only a handful of people were awake. They were dumbfounded. Where people breakfasted, the intentionally savage voice made food seem unimportant. Where it was midday, waves of violent emotion swept over the land. Call the defense forces, Bors commanded the grid office by transmitter. They'll be Meekinese, Meekinese officered anyhow. We don't want them to get ideas of attacking us, so identify us as the pirate ship Isis and order all police and garrison troops to stay exactly where they are. Say, we've got all our fusion bombs armed to go off in case of an artillery fire hit. This was the most valid of all possible threats against the most probable form of attack. Fusion bombs could be used against enemies in space, or for the annihilation of a population, but they could not be used in police operations against a subject people. To coerce people, one must avoid destroying them. So while a ship the size of the Isis could, and did, carry enough confined hellfire in its missile warheads to destroy an area hundreds of miles across, the occupation troops of Meekin could not use such weapons. They needed blast rifles for minor threats and artillery for selective destruction. In any case, no sane man would try to destroy the Isis aground after an announcement that its bombs were armed, and that they were fused to explode. "'Now repeat the demand for stores,' ordered Bors. "'We might as well stock up. Speed is essential. We can't use stores they've time to booby-trap or poison. Give them twenty minutes to start the stuff arriving. Demand fuel, extra rocket fuel especially. Remind them about our bombs.' He waited. Speakers beside him could inform him of any action anywhere outside or inside the ship. 
The landing party in the spaceport building reported, as it went through the spaceport records, picking up such information concerning Mekinese commercial regulations, identification calls, and anticipated ship movements as might prove useful elsewhere. The rasping voice began to broadcast again. It went on for fifteen seconds and cut off. "'Tell the government broadcasting system that if they stop relaying our broadcast,' said Bors, "'we'll heave a bomb into the police barracks and the supply depots.' He heard the threat issued, and very soon thereafter an agitated voice announced to the people of Tre-Lee that a pirate ship was in possession of the planet's spaceport, and that it insisted upon broadcasting to the planet's people. It was considered unwise to refuse. Therefore the broadcast would continue, but of course citizens could turn off their sets. There came a roar of anger and the harsh-voiced broadcaster returned to the air. His taped broadcast had run out. Now he bellowed such subversive profanity directed at the officials of Tre-Lee under Meekin that Bohr smiled sourly. It was not good for Meekinese prestige to have a subject people know that one ship could defy the Empire, even for minutes. It was still less desirable to have the members of the puppet government described as dogs of particularly described breeds, of particularly described characteristics, and particular lack of legitimacy. Bors had chosen for his broadcast a man of vivid imagination and large vocabulary. He did not want the Isis to appear under discipline, lest it seem to act under orders. He wanted to create the impression of men turned pirates because everything they lived for had been destroyed, and who now were running amuck among the planets Meekin had subjugated. The broadcast was not incitement to revolt, because Borza's ship was posing as the only survivor of a planet's fleet. But it conveyed such contempt and derision and hatred of all things Meekinese that for months to come men would whisper jokes based on what an Isis crewman had said on Tralee's air. The respect the planet's officials craved would drop below its former low level. Time passed. Bors, of course, could not send a landing party anywhere, lest it be sniped. He had actually accomplished the purpose for which he'd landed, the getting of a shipload of food out to space the announcement of the destruction of Kandar's fleet and the spreading of contempt and derision for Meekin in Tralee. Now he had to keep anyone from suspecting the importance of the cargo ship. The demand for stores was a cover-up for things already done. But that cover-up had to be completed. Vehicles appeared at the edge of the landing grid. Figures advanced individually, waving white flags. Bohr sent men out with small arms to get their messages. These were the supplies he'd demanded. Food, rocket fuel, more food. The vehicles trundled into the open and stopped. Men from the Isis waved away the drivers and took over the trucks. They brought most of them to the ship's side. A petty officer came into the control room and saluted. "'Sir,' he said briskly, one of the drivers told me his load of grub had time-bombs in it. The secret police use time-bombs and booby-traps here, sir, to keep the people terrified. He says the bombs will go off after we're out in space, sir." "'What did you do?' asked Bors. "'I pretended the truck stalled and I couldn't start it. Two other drivers tipped off our men. We left those trucks and some others out on the field so the drivers wouldn't be suspected of alerting us.' "'Good work,' said Bors. "'Better put detectors on all parcels from all trucks before bringing them aboard.' "'Booby-traps can be made very tricky indeed, but when they are used by secret police—' Bors allowed himself to rage for a moment only, at the idea of that kind of terrorism practiced by a government on its supposed citizens. It would be intended to enforce the totalitarian idea that what is not commanded for the ordinary citizen to do is forbidden to him. But secret police booby-traps and time-bombs would be standardized. He hadn't allowed time for complex, detection-proof devices to be made. Detectors would pick out any ordinary trickery. 
The harsh-voiced broadcaster continued to harangue the population of Trey Lee, of which the least of his words was high treason. They enjoyed the broadcast very much. Presently, Bors began to fidget. The Isis had been aground for thirty-five minutes. He had sat in the control room that whole time, supervising a smoothly running operation. He had had to supervise it. Nobody else could have planned and carried it out. But it was not heroic. He had the line officer's inherent scorn for administrative officers, who are necessary but not glamorous or admired. He was stuck with just that kind of duty now. But he fretted. The local officials were given time to get over their panic. They ought to be planning some countermeasure by this time. He called the spaceport office. There should be a map of the city somewhere about, he said crisply. Send it along special. Bring a communicator call book. If you find any news reports, new or old, we want them. Yes, sir, said a brisk voice. The broadcast's right, sir? It is, said Bors. You're mining the grid setup. We'll blow it before we leave. There's no point in letting Meekin set down transports loaded with troops to punish innocent people because they heard the Meekinese accurately described. Make them land on rockets, and there won't be so many landing. Yes, sir. We'll do, sir. A click. Bors heard heavy materials being loaded aboard. Each object was being examined by a detector. The loading process stopped. Bors pressed a button. What happened? he demanded. Looks like a booby-trapped box, sir, said a voice. Among the supplies, sir. Take it off a hundred yards and riddle it, ordered Bors. This may settle a problem for us. Yes, sir. Bors fidgeted again. A messenger from the grid control building arrived. He had a map of the capital city of Tralee. There was an explosion, a violent one. Bors looked out a port and saw where the suspected parcel had been set up as a target a hundred yards from the ship. It had been riddled with blast rifle bolts and had exploded. It might not have destroyed the Isis if it had exploded in space, but it would not have done it any good. Bors pushed the button for the loading port compartment. "'Throw out all the stuff loaded so far,' he commanded. Some of it may be booby-trapped like that last one. We won't take a chance. Heave it all out again. Yes, sir. Bors gave other orders. The harsh-voiced broadcast stopped. Bors's own voice went out on the air, steely hard. Captain Bors, pirate ship, Isis speaking, he said coldly. We demanded supplies. They were sent us, government supplied. We have found one booby-trap included. In retaliation for this attempted assassination, we are going to lob chemical explosive missiles into the principal government buildings of this city. We give three minutes leeway for clerks and other persons to get clear of those buildings. The three minutes start now." The sun shone tranquilly on the planet Tralee. White clouds floated with infinite leisureliness across the blue sky. There was no motion of any sort within the wide, open area of the landing grid. Over a large part of this world's surface, all activity had stopped while men listened to a broadcast. Fifteen seconds gone,' said Bors icily. He wrote out an order and passed it for execution. Thirty seconds gone!' From twenty giant buildings in the city, a black tide of running figures began to pour. When they reached the street, they went on running. They wanted to get as far as possible from the buildings Bors had said would be destroyed. Forty-five seconds gone,' said Bors implacably. A voice spoke from the grid-control building, where men were now placing explosives with precisely calculated effects. The voice came on microwaves to the ship. "'Sir,' said the voice, "'landing grid reporting. Space yacht Silva reports breakout from overdrive and asks coordinates for landing. Purpose of visit, pleasure travel.' Bohr swore, then smiled to himself. 
Gwenlin had threatened to do something drastic. "'Say landing's forbidden,' he commanded an instant later. "'Advise immediate departure.' He pressed a button and said evenly, "'One minute gone. In two minutes more we send our bombs and take off.' Streets outside the government buildings were filled from building wall to building wall, by clerks drafted to staff the incredible, arbitrary government set up on its tributary worlds by Meekin. Boris scribbled a list of buildings to be ranged on. The map from the spaceport office would help. He marked the Ministry of Police, which would contain the records essential to the operation of the planet-wide police system. Anything that happened to those records would be so much good fortune for Trey Lee and so much bad for the master race and its quislings. He marked the Ministry of the Interior, which would house the machinery for requisitions of tribute to Meekin. The Ministry of Public Order would be the headquarters of the secret and the political police. It ran the forced labor camps. It filed all anonymous accusations. It kept records on all persons suspected of the crime of patriotism. If anything happened to those records, it would be all to the good. Two minutes gone,' said Bors. The voice from the spaceport control building said briskly, "'Demolition charges placed, sir. Ready to evacuate and fire. Sir, the space-yacht Silva sends a message to the captain of the pirate ship. It says they'll wait.' Bors said, "'Damn! All right!' Then, into the broadcast microphone, Two and a half minutes. There will be no further countdown. In thirty seconds, we fire missiles into government buildings, in retaliation for an attempt to assassinate us with time bombs. The next sound you hear will be our missiles arriving. He cut back to the grid control building. Fire all charges and report to the ship. Almost instantly, curt, crisp reports sounded nearby. The landing party came smartly back to the airlock, while explosions continued in the building they'd left. "'Launcher tubes! Train on targets!' Bors commanded. He pressed another button. "'Rocket room! Make ready for lift!' Back to the launcher tube communicator. "'Fire missiles one, two, three, four, five, six. There were boomings, which rose to bellowings as devastation tore away from the Isis's launching tubes. Bohr said irritably to the rocket room, "'Take her up!' And then the ship lifted on her rockets, they were not solely for emergency use as on cargo ships, and rushed towards the sky. As the ship mounted on its column of writhing smoke, other smoky columns spouted up. Six of them. But they were limited. They went up two thousand feet and then tended to mushroom. Bits of debris went higher and spread more widely, and for a time there were fragments of buildings and their contents flying wildly about. But the ship went straight upward. The city and the open country beyond it shrank swiftly. The spouted smokes of explosions in the city were left behind. Mountains appeared at one horizon and a sea at another. Then the vast expanse of the planet suddenly acquired a curved edge, and the ship again went up and up, while the sky turned dark and some stars appeared in futile competition with the sun, and the surface of Tralee became visibly the near side of an enormous globe. Then the planet became plainly what it was, a great ball floating in space, one half of it brilliant in the sunshine and one part of it bathed in night. Bors put on the solar system drive and changed course. A voice came through. "'Calling pirate ship! Calling pirate ship! Space yacht Silva calling pirate ship!' Bors growled into a microphone. "'What the devil are you doing in this place? What's happened?' Gwenlin's voice, bland and amused. "'Nothing happened. But we've got some news for you. Make rendezvous at the fourth planet.' Bors swore again. That was where he was to meet the cargo ship captured and sent aloft, supposedly destroyed on Tralee. 
but he drove on out, around and away from Tralee. He was reasonably satisfied with his landing on Tralee. With some luck, the news of the landing of a lone survivor of the Kandarian fleet might reach Meekin before it was aware of what had happened to its occupation force. With a little more luck, the attention of Meekin would be devoted more to a ship which dared to turn pirate than to Kandar itself. With unlimited favorable fortune, Meekin might actually send ships to hunt the Isis instead of asking questions on Kandar. But Bors made a mental note. The more time that passed before Meekin knew what had happened, the better. So a ship, or two, or three, might be detached from the fleet and sent back to hang off Kandar. If a single ship came inquiringly, it might be sniped and the news of Kandar suppressed for a while longer. And it was conceivable that Meekin might come to worry more about other matters than the success or failure of a routine expansion of its empire. The fourth planet loomed up on schedule. Bors was irritated, as often before, by the relatively slow solar system drive. Overdrive was sometimes not fast enough, but solar system drive was infuriatingly slow. Yet one couldn't use overdrive in a solar system. Approaching a planet on overdrive would be like trying to garage a ground car at sixty miles an hour. One couldn't stop where one wanted to. He wondered, vaguely, if Logan, the math talent, could handle such a problem, and dismissed the idea. One could break a circuit with an accuracy of microseconds, but that wouldn't be close enough for overdrive. It wouldn't be practical. Then the ice sheet of Trady's nearest neighbor planet spread out in the vision port's range of view. Boris called for the cargo ship. It answered almost immediately. It was standard practice, of course, that the site of a meeting planned at a given planet would be wherever its poles pointed nearest to galactic north. The cargo ship had just arrived. It barely responded before the Silva began to call again. The three ships then joined their orbits and went swinging about the glacier world beneath them while they conferred. The report from the cargo ship was unexpectedly satisfactory. It had been almost completely loaded, and its cargo was largely foodstuffs intended for Meekin. Kandar's fleet in hiding was already subsisting on emergency rations. This cargo of assorted frozen foods would be welcome. Bors gave orders for it to head for Glamis immediately, in overdrive. Communication had been three-way, and Gwenlin said quickly, "'Just a moment. Did you pick up any news reports on Trey Lee? Hmm, yes. I'd better send them. You'd better, echoed Gwenlin, scolding. My father stayed with the fleet to try to explain what Talents Incorporated can do. He kept most of the talents with him for demonstrations. The Department for Predicting Dirty Tricks is there. Don't you remember what that department works on? Of course you've got to send those news reports. Bors ordered a spaceboat to come from the cargo ship for the reports. Would you like to come to dinner on the yacht? asked Gwynlin. You're all living on emergency rations. Nobody asked us to divide our supplies with the fleet. I can give you a nice meal. Better not, said Bors curtly, and mumbled thanks. He ordered the cargo ship to send as much of its stores as the spaceboat could conveniently carry. "'Then how about some cigars?' asked Gwenlin. She seemed at once amused and approving, because Bors would not indulge himself in a really satisfying meal while his crew lived on far from appetizing emergency foodstuffs. "'No,' said Bors, "'no cigars either.' You said you had some news for me. What is it?" "'I brought along our ship arrival talent,' said Gwenlin blandly. "'He can only tell when a ship will arrive at the solar system where he is, so he had to come here to precognize.' Bors felt again that stubborn incredulity which Talents Incorporated would always rouse in a mind like his. 
There'll be a ship arriving here in two days, four hours, sixteen minutes from now," said Gwendolyn matter-of-factly. He thinks it's a fighting ship, though he can't be sure. It could be a cruiser, or something like that, doing mail duty, coming to deliver orders and receive reports. You can't run an empire without a regular news system, and Meekin wouldn't depend on commercial ships for government business. Good, said Bors. Thanks. There was a pause. What will you do now? Try to raise the devil somewhere else, said Bors. Try to pick up another food ship, probably. Maybe I ought to let this ship alone, to carry news of the pirate ship Isis back to Meekin. But, no, they use booby traps as police devices. It was not reasonable, but Bors could not think of missing a Meekinese warship. The idea of a government using booby traps to enforce its orders somehow put it beyond forgiveness, and with the government all those who served it willingly. "'You'll go to Garin, then?' asked Gwenlin. Bors felt a sharp sting of annoyance. He had carefully kept secret the choice of Garin III as the next planet to be invaded by the pseudo-pirate ship. It was upsetting to find that Gwenlin knew about it. Blast Talents Incorporated! The dousing talent, said Gwenlin, says there's a battleship around there. There've been some riots. The people of Garin don't like Meekin either. Strange! The battleship is to overawe them. How do you know that? demanded Bors. The Department for Predicting Dirty Tricks was reading old news reports she told him. We're leaving now. Bye." Goodbye, said Bors, and sighed, not knowing whether he felt regret or relief. The space-yacht Silva flicked out of sight. It had gone into overdrive. Bors realized that he hadn't noticed which way it pointed. He should have taken note. But he shook his head. He gave the cargo ship detailed orders receiving its spaceboat and what food it had been able to bring. He set it off to meet his fleet at Glamis. He stayed in orbit around the fourth planet to wait for a Meganese fighting ship. He began, too, to make long-range plans.